brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Hallelujah and hello, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And although it's a nice idea that while we work our way towards the American dream and raise our flag-waving families, the nation's institutions and regulatory agencies are the all-knowing and altruistic advocates for the health, wellness, and safety of the common man that we conveniently like to think they are, but we can find many instances where these institutions fail us, either by ignorance, incompetence, pay-for-play scandals, regulatory capture, or even dark experimentation. Chemical spray testing in the inner city projects of St. Louis, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments carried out by the U.S. Public Health Service, or under-the-table radiation exposure testing done on the poor and imprisoned. And even when something is discovered to be a hazard to public health, like asbestos, various FDA-approved pharmaceuticals, or lead paint, the game plan of government is typically to ignore rising concerns as long as it can, shuck off responsibility, and quietly keep society ignorant with a well-funded PR campaign of damage control. And the power and influence of today's megacorporations only make these problems worse. So when experts and activists raise concerns over things like GMO agriculture or cell phone frequencies, it's hard not to wonder if they might have a point. Well, one recent example that illustrates some of these issues quite well is the Flint water crisis. And when I wanted to learn more about the nuances of the situation, I found Detroit journalist Anna Clark's heavily praised book, The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy, a terrific expose on the perfect storm of neglect, suppression, deception, and systematic injustice that goes back much further than the switching of water sources in 2014. Luckily, she was willing to talk to us today, and I couldn't be more psyched about it. A true champion of the people, the Flint water writer and journalist for justice, Anna Clark, welcome to The Higher Side. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, this is a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. You wrote a great book that not only details the Flint water crisis, but also goes into the deep history of unjust policies, economic conditions, neglect, and segregation that... I really wasn't aware of or expecting, as well as just how vulnerable our national infrastructure is 
to there being many more Flints in the future. It's actually quite scary. But to kick this off, you've lived in Detroit for over a decade. You've written about Michigan history and its cities more than once. Let's give the people some context for Flint. What can you tell us about that deeper history of the city that you found interesting while putting this book together? Sure. Well, Flint is a fascinating city, and I'm glad you're starting with that question because a lot of times when people talk about Flint, Michigan, they talk about what it's lost, right? They talk about how it's lost jobs, especially auto jobs. Flint is the birthplace of General Motors. So they talk about how it's lost people. It's lost like more than half of its population in the last 50 years and how it's lost public services and human rights in many ways, as the Flint water crisis showed. But what people miss a lot is what is there. (laughs) You know, it's not just a place that is defined by its absences. It's defined by what's present. Flint today is a city of about 100,000 people. It's, I think, still the seventh largest city in the state. It is, as I mentioned, the birthplace of General Motors, which in its heyday was like really one of the most powerful corporations in the entire world. And that is absolutely what catalyzed its growth in the 20th century. This very, you know, kind of entrepreneurial river town, you know, became a destination for people from all over the world who are looking for these like really solid working class jobs at GM and all the other kind of companies that rose up alongside it. Flint also has today like four college campuses. The University of Michigan has a Flint campus there. There's also Kettering University, which used to be known as General Motors Institute, a cooperative engineering school, as well as a community college and Baker College, a kind of extension school. It's a beautiful city in many ways. You know, it's got this gorgeous art museum, the second largest art museum in the state, the largest planetarium in the state. You can see that it's a city that had really invested in its cultural life for a long time. It's sort of philanthropy, I guess, that rose up along with a lot of these auto jobs and all that. But you can also see a lot of the dysfunction of the past still playing out today. So Flint was one of the most segregated cities in the entire country, not just in the north. At one point, it was the third most segregated city behind two cities in the south. So it was ferociously administered. So African-Americans were only allowed to live in two neighborhoods in Flint. And as its population was just quadrupling, quintupling, growing so fast, especially with African-American migrants from the south who were looking for these jobs, it got absolutely untenable just in a justice way and also just (laughs) functionally, like it was just crowding and predatory landlords and it was just terrible. And through an unlikely journey, Flint became the first city in the country to pass a fair housing ordinance by a popular vote, which was tremendous news and hard fought and came through just by a hair. Um, And yet it's also rather bittersweet because that vote came just two years before the census marked the first downtick in population for the city, a a downturn in numbers that has continued on to this day. And with also the loss of a lot of these jobs, it's created a cycle that has made it very difficult for people to live their lives in Flint right now. Right on, right on. Yes, that's great introductory context. You mentioned housing and that Flint has this toxic history of segregation. And to quote the book, you write that In the past, conditions had been set up so mortgages and homes outside of two designated neighborhoods remained beyond the reach for African Americans. 
black real estate agents were barred from joining the Flint Board of Realtors, serving as appraisers or accessing property listings on the industry standard multiple listing exchange. I mean, wow, obviously we're talking about a little while ago, but that's pretty shocking. Right. In some ways, it's not even that long ago, right? This is still living memory for people. And it has real consequences. I mean, segregation was enforced at every single level from the federal government to the state government to local government to private companies, organizations, groups like these. There were some folks who tried to circumvent segregation in Flint by you know, for example, building a house in a white neighborhood so that maybe they could get their kid into a school they wanted them to go to. And they would just redraw the district lines to keep them out. I mean, it was just fiercely guarded, this separate and unequal way of designing this city. And it was, as you said, toxic. Mm. And I've heard other interviews where you've even mentioned the prospect that some black families with white friends would have the white friends purchase the property and then sell it back to them just so that they could get into a house they might want. People would try to, yeah, get around it that way, though that didn't always go over well, (laughs) as well as hoped. There was one story, this was like, in those years that was after Brown versus Board of Education, where schools were desegregated, but the residential segregation was still held a lot. Parents were complaining to a teacher that about the presence of a black child in the second grade class. So they made that kid sit in a closet with the door open, Uh you know, to look in on the rest of the class while the teacher taught them. I mean, it was in every single way, African Americans were told that they were second class citizens. And it was having a concrete limitation on their ability to live their lives. This was also enforced, you know, in the jobs, all these GM jobs that had drawn such a large African-American population to Flint in the first place. They were given the lowest paying jobs. They were given the dirtiest jobs, the most dangerous jobs, like in these car foundries. They were just systematically kept out of the full opportunity of living their lives and to pass on any generational stability and wealth to their children. Mm. And when it comes to the decade just before the water crisis, you have some pretty shocking statistics in the book, too. Apparently, between 2000 and 2010, 22,000 people left Flint, which is an 18% population loss. And I guess, what are some of the other factors that contributed to that? Obviously, issues with the auto industry would be one. The general 2008 recession would probably be another. What else is there? Right. The recession, that's a big one, right? The foreclosure crisis, the housing crisis, it kind of comes back a lot to homes in so many ways, both in the you know early 20th century and today. I think another reason a lot of folks left is because their schools, as the population dropped, as property tax values that school budgets rely on dropped, there was less capacity for the city to provide really terrific public education as it once did for many of its residents. And a lot of families left for the suburbs or elsewhere because they wanted to put their kids in schools where they felt they would have a chance. I think the first big drop of population in Flint over the last 50 years was definitely white people. The population loss in the 21st century has been more African-American families than others who have just had to absorb a lot. You know, when you have this sort of spiraling dysfunction in the city, 
it just shows up in every way, like schools, public safety, the quality of the roads, the cost of the water. <laughs> you know, it just shows up in every single way. And even folks who really love the city, it can be hard to stick around. Yes, indeed. And I wanted to ask you about that, the conditions leading up and this population loss, because one of the saddest elements to me in this story is just how stuck the remaining population is or was, because anyone who had the money to leave, they definitely did. And I thought this was pretty shocking. But at the time of the water crisis, 80% of the people in Flint had an income of under 40000 and 40% were making less than 15000 a year. And that is insane. It is insane. I mean, Flint is, I mean, just by some recent, you know, census estimates, it is one of the poorest, if not the poorest city per capita in the entire country. And, and when you have, like, poverty is a violence in itself. And when you concentrate poverty the way it is in a city like Flint, you're concentrating vulnerability. It is not a coincidence that these folks are at the front lines of a number of these kind of disasters and crises. They've been set up to be vulnerable in so many ways. And it's just incredibly difficult. I mean, I grew up in a poor family. And one of the reasons I had a shot is because I lived in a community where there was people way richer than me. So I went to better schools. It was safer when I like walked down the street or played in parks. The economic integration, you know, helped give me some opportunities I might not have had had I grown up in a city where everybody was poor like my family. You know, I mean, it's just you just literally do not have the resources to support the city. And of course, even as its population went down and the average income of residents went down, you know, the city has the responsibility to serve the same square footage, right, that it always had. It has to maintain these roads and it has to deal with all these properties, all this infrastructure, but it has far less resources to do it. Mm -hmm. Good points. And you also mentioned that the state of Michigan had this revenue sharing program, which would take tax money and they could kind of move it wherever they wanted within the state and ended up diverting maybe $5.5 that would have gone to Flint and the surrounding areas. And the state just used it to pay debts or work on other things instead of the infrastructure that it's really meant to be used for. And all these problems just compound. And like you said, set up to be vulnerable. That is a, a great phrase to use for such a situation. And when it comes to the water switching issue itself, talk to us about where Flint had been getting its water and why this decision was even made to switch the city's water source to the Flint River. Yes, very good question. Very important question. And before I answer that, I'm glad you brought up the revenue sharing thing too, because that is one of the, I would say, the still unresolved <laughs> issues. I mean, there's the state has withheld a lot of money that would ordinarily, many would say it was obliged to provide to its cities to pay for public services. And it withheld it even when the state itself had a surplus and cities have struggled with that, even wealthier cities. But of course, the cities that have the narrowest margin for error have been hit the most and it's still a problem but okay back to the water switch this is this <laughs> this brings us to april 2014 that's when the switch happened flint had been getting it's about an hour's drive from detroit it had been getting its water through detroit's water system for about 50 years and the detroit water system biggest utility in the state 
had like 4 million customers, nearly half the state's population. And it got its water mainly from Lake Huron, one of the Great Lakes, beautiful, gorgeous lake. The water quality was very solid, but Flint had a number of grievances with the utility. It was, it felt that as one of the largest customers, it should have more say so in the direction. And most especially, they were struggling with the cost of the water. Flint had excessively expensive water, even before you get to the fact that it's a poor community. I mean, it would be expensive water for anyone. And the reason for that is because they were struggling to pay to maintain a water system built for twice as many people and General Motors. <laughs> and you have far fewer people and far poorer people to do it. The rates were super, super high. And even then, they weren't able to totally maintain it. So the water crisis before the water crisis was there was just like rampant shutoffs and illegal water hookups that were then prosecuted. There was like some worried it was going to be a public health crisis. People were frustrated with the water and they wanted some kind of change. But that was the mood in the town. But the most significant factor in the switch was that Flint had an emergency manager at the time. This is somebody that the state appointed to the city to take total control over it. So it had the power that the mayor would have and the power that the city council would have. They no longer had those powers. That all was held by the state-appointed emergency manager. And that emergency manager had extra powers in addition to that that no elected official has, like the power to unilaterally sell city assets or break union contracts, things like that. This is what the state considered necessary to get this struggling city back on its feet. And it did it this to a number of cities in Michigan. It was one of the most expansive state oversight models in the entire country. So under the emergency manager, the emergency manager decided they were going to leave Detroit's water system and they were going to join this brand new water system called the KWA, Karagandy Water Authority. But the trick is this new water system wasn't yet built and wouldn't be for a couple of years. And so under the emergency manager, they decided they were going to reboot the old city plant, Flint water plant by the Flint River and use the Flint River water to get them through the interim period before connecting to the KWA. This was more or less celebrated at the time. They did this real public press conference where they like toast with the river water at the city plant. Everybody in the video really <laughs> regrets it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did not go well at all in any way. <laughs> and it didn't make the water cheaper, too. That's the other thing, because the problem wasn't the water source. It was the infrastructure. So while the emergency manager implied that getting more local control over the water would lower people's prices, it did not, and also just added to the city's debt. Mm. And on the subject of the KWA, I'm probably getting way ahead of myself here, but this was kind of mind-blowing to me. But you write about the punishing terms of the contract. Apparently, if Flint were to miss even one of its annual bond payments, the KWA could seize the city's treatment plant plus 25% of its state revenue sharing money, and it could also force the city to levy a tax to get its money. And this is like the kind of thing that drives me nuts because I don't know if you could call the KWA a corporation or a private entity, but just you know, we should put the people first in a lot of these situations. And yet these these little companies end up having these sweetheart deals that just completely screw the people when the KWA is not important. The people of Flint 
are, you know, what should be more important. And that's just kind of insane power to give to something like this. It is insane power. And I am glad to bring it up because the terms of this deal with the KWA has been really overshadowed by all the other stuff that happened with Flint's water. But even if everything had gone well in a public health respect with the water switch, there's a lot of reasons to raise your eyebrows at how this deal happened because this KWA, it is, you know, technically this public agency, but it is also just unusual in many respects. This is a state that has tons of <laughs> distinctive water plants utilities. It's odd to like kind of create a new one that's sort of duplicating resources we already have. Mm. An emergency manager is technically assigned to these poor cities and school districts because they're supposed to get rid of redundancies and get rid of debt and, you know, all that. By signing on with the KWA, they took out $80 million in debt, which was beyond its legal limit. It did uh, this like kind of sneaky little workaround to basically in debt Flint to this like long-term contract with the KWA. They were also going to make the city responsible for treating and delivering its water, even under the KWA, even when the switch was complete. And it was doing all of this to provide Flint with what it already had, which is water from Lake Huron, right? Like that's what it was getting from Detroit. Emergency managers aren't supposed to add to the debt. They're supposed to get rid of the debt. But even if they did, it wasn't doing it to meet any of the other essential needs Flint had, like with its police department or fire department or its schools. No, they did this deal to give it what it already had, water from Lake Huron, except now you have to treat it yourself. You know, it doesn't make really rational sense from even a financial point of view. It's often said Flint switched its water to save money, but even on that level, the city budget had extra debt. People's water rates went up. Who was saving money? Even if everything had gone perfectly well, the whole thing is very, very strange. But Flint, as it happened, never did complete the switch to the KWA because things went wrong with its, <laughs> with its temporary stopgap water treatment plan. Right. Yes. And let's get into that. It's basically the situation where they needed to reboot an old water treatment plant that hadn't been used in a long time. And this is where the problem starts with toxic water, right? Right. A number of things went wrong. And one of them is that this old water treatment plant did not get the investment or the staffing necessary to treat the water properly. And that's especially important because the river is any river, not just the Flint River, any river is going to be a more complex water source to treat, which you and your listeners would know intuitively because, you know, when you take a glass full of water from a freshwater lake and a glass full of water from the river, you can imagine how the river water will be cloudier, right? It's just more complex to treat, even a healthy river. And they did not prepare appropriately, first of all, to treat this more complex water source the way it needed to be treated. And the most serious thing they didn't do is they didn't add corrosion control to the water, which is what you're legally supposed to do by federal law, legally supposed to do at the treatment plant, which is something you add to the water so that when it passes through pipes on its way to your home, it helps keep the metals from corroding into the water, right? Because our pipes are almost universally, even in wealthier communities, almost universally super old. And a lot of them, a disturbing amount of them are made out of lead, which is one of the world's best known neurotoxins. And while corrosion control does not eliminate all of it, it's still a big issue about how we just need to get the lead out of all of our water systems. 
but it helps a lot. And not doing it was breaking the law. And <laughs> they didn't do it not just for a short time, but for a long time, for more than a year and a half. So this is how Flint's pipes start totally breaking down, leading people to have turn on the tap and find brown water, orange water coming from like the iron, the rust, the corroded iron. Or while it was invisible, it was still present, the lead, as well as a number of other water issues that were happening all simultaneously. Yes, this corrosion control issue was one of the most shocking things I learned from your book. And it was immediately when I was like, oh, we can definitely do a show about this because this really is a system that's in place for the whole country, it seems. And we all know, I think, that the American plumbing infrastructure is in trouble and that it's largely lead pipes. But intuitively, I would think either you replace the pipes or there is some kind of maybe a coating on the pipes to keep the lead from getting in the water. But the idea of adding chemicals or adding something directly to the water so that it doesn't strip the pipes, I mean... I have concerns about the safety of that and the efficacy of that. It just seems like a strange way to go about it. Right. It's essentially, basically, there's no way to get all of the lead out of our drinking water until all the lead's out of our pipes and not just the pipes, but also the plumbing fixtures, sometimes things that are inside the home, just anywhere. And um, unfortunately, it's everywhere. And without funding to do that, people are at risk. And so this corrosion control plan, it's interesting you meant coating because like when it works properly, it does create a kind of coating that separates the pipe from the water as it passes through. It makes a big difference, especially when your water supply is a river water. River water is naturally more corrosive. Without it, the coating breaks down and then the pipes break down and all that. And it's also, you know, even as separately from lead, as you mentioned, like, I mean, our infrastructure, our drinking water infrastructure is you know, just often 80 years old, 100 years old. I've heard of an active pipe being used in the city where I live that's still a hollowed out log, like a tree, a tree hmm. trunk, like, <laughs> which is, first of all, kind of amazing <laughs> that that works and lasts so long. But on the other hand, it's a signal of how little we invest in drinking water infrastructure. I mean, the pipes are underground. It's easy to not think about them until they break, until it's a problem. Maintaining them is expensive. Upgrading them is expensive and complicated. If you're an elected leader, if you're somebody in charge of this stuff, I mean, it's a long-term commitment. Voters aren't typically asking about it. It's just really easy to just not prioritize. And so we haven't. And so we try to get by on these temporary sort of stopgap, quote-unquote, solutions that help us delay actually solving the root problem. Right, right. I, I totally acknowledge that it's difficult, but I guess I think to when all this pipe was laid in the first place, it's like there wasn't a tax base. We were just building out infrastructure. Now you would think that, yes, it's hard, but I mean, what else are you supposed to do as a government but handle the hard problems that individuals <laughs> can't handle? But I wanted to ask you a little more about just how pervasive lead is in our society. I loved your chapter titled Alchemy because, mm -hmm. well, alchemy is a pretty provocative term already, and everyone knows about this basic idea of turning lead into gold. And symbolically, this is the story of the American infrastructure. You call it a sort of ideological alchemy, and I really liked that, but elaborate on it if you could. Sure. I'll tell you what, you and your community will understand. I really went down the wormhole with alchemy, <laughs> much more than I could put in the book, um, it. because it's fascinating, right? I mean, 
there is this like really thin line. It seems like sometimes between science and magic and science and wizardry, you know, like it's amazing that you can turn some things into other things. Cooking does that. Why not turn lead into gold, right? Amen. Amen. (laughs) And so, (laughs) I mean, lead, lead is a fascinating substance. There's a lot of reasons why people want to make it work, right? For us, it's a very durable metal. It can last for a long time. This is why these pipes lasted as long as they did, but it's also very flexible. So when you're putting pipes in, you can kind of bend it around cellars or tree roots, things like that. If you put lead in paint, it makes it stick better on the wall or the canvas and also shine brighter. So this is why you had this white lead paint, all that. Lead was added to fuel thanks to folks related to General Motors and Flint, of all things, (laughs) because it made the cars run more efficiently and more smoothly. It required less oil, less petroleum. So a weird way you can think of it as environmental. There's all these reasons why lead was a miracle substance in so many ways. It's plentiful. It's abundant. You know, there's all these reasons. But the downside is it's poison. <laughs> it's just poisonous. But there is no amount of lead that is safe for human beings. Unlike iron or copper, right? Like these zinc, these other metals that sometimes that are considered a nutrient at a certain level, lead works the exact opposite way. No amount of it is safe or natural for human beings. And when we've exposed ourselves to it in so many ways, it has an effect, right? The fight to get lead poisoning acknowledged in a reasonable way was a long, long battle and is still incomplete, as we can see with things that happen with Flint. This is why I thought of it as ideological alchemy. We want to think that We can just make it work or it won't be that bad or we can work around it or we can just, you know, if we just treat it with this, it'll be, you know, whatever. But the fact is, it's just poisonous and it is especially harmful to infants and young children. It can have incurable, devastating consequences. It's also dangerous to adults, especially with reproductive issues. It can cause miscarriages, stillbirths, fertility issues. It's dangerous to the nervous system, to brain development. And again, there's no way to cure it or get rid of it. And it accumulates, right? Like you get exposed to it maybe through drinking water and also exposed to it through paint chips and also exposed to it to lead that's in the soil because of the whole legacy of leaded auto fuel where it came out in exhaust and just sprayed everywhere. It gets into your bloodstream first, then it's absorbed into your bones and it basically just stays there, kind of like calcium, right? It's kind of absorbed like calcium and it can be like released later, like a little ticking time bomb that hinders you. And one reason why it's kind of confusing and why it took so long to get this acknowledged is that it doesn't affect everybody the same. It doesn't affect everybody immediately, but the patterns are very clear. And at a certain point, we just have to deal with it. Mm, mm. Man, scary stuff. And this lack of corrosion control obviously was a huge factor, but It wasn't the only safety issue with Flint's water, was it? Right. Lead is for sure a major problem and the most famous problem about what happened with the water. But there were a number of other water issues. Lead didn't even break into a headline first until almost a year later. So there was a number of escalating problems. So one was bacterial contamination, like E. coli bacterial contamination that was causing a lot of shutoffs in different neighborhoods and boil water advisories, things like that. That was becoming a pattern. The water was so corrosive since it wasn't treated properly that there's a General Motors plant still in Flint 
They found that it was corroding their machinery, their auto parts, and they couldn't do their work. And it was so significant that they switched on to a suburbs water source so they could return to Detroit water. People very reasonably were like, well, if this isn't good for GM, is it safe for me? <laughs> is it safe for my kids? And the state's like, yeah, it's fine for you. Um, that's crazy. And, mm-hmm. and then, <laughs> then, you know, a few months later, there was something called, its acronym is TTHNs. This is a carcinogen that can get into the water. It's basically a disinfection byproduct. It's basically they were trying to deal with the E. coli problem with chlorine and it was getting all messed up and it was resulting in too many TTHMs. That was a Safe Drinking Water Act violation that was alarming people that they tried to tamp down. And also, and this didn't even became public to anyone until nearly two years after the switch. But there had been a two-year outbreak of something called Legionnaire's disease. This is what actually killed people. These are the people who actually lost their lives. Legionnaire's disease is similar to pneumonia, basically. It's like a really serious form of pneumonia. And it's caused by a waterborne bacteria that you would inhale, like maybe when you're taking a shower through the steam or cooking with hot water, something like that. And it caused people's lives. The official numbers are about... 90 or so people sickened and 12 people who died, though that's considered a very conservative estimate because without this being acknowledged or seriously addressed or without heads up given to doctors and hospitals and things like that, it wasn't tested for <laughs> as it should have been or documented as it should have been. And it's believed that there are a lot more lives lost that were at the time called pneumonia. But in fact, it was a Legionnaire's disease and more uniquely connected to the water. Mm-hmm. Man. And so how long was it before people started to notice something was wrong with this new water? What were people seeing? It seemed to happen pretty much right away, right? Yes. As a journalist, kind of looking back at trying to document what happened when to get a sense of the order, like it was much sooner than I would have expected. This switch, the first switch happened April of 2014. The first complaints people were making to Various agencies, the state environmental agency, the EPA even, were in May, so a month later. And to be fair, there might have been just a certain amount of dissatisfaction, even if everything was perfectly safe and healthy, because, you know, it is a different water source. It tastes a little bit different, et cetera. But these concerns <laughs> could not be just dismissed as that and escalated over time. So, yeah, beginning in just a month after the switch, people in Flint were reaching out to whoever they could think of to say, hey, something doesn't seem right here. Something doesn't look right here. And their concerns were, you know, repeatedly dismissed or officials were sort of saying, well, you know, we'll just tweak this and that, but don't worry, it's fine. Again and again, people were told it's fine until they really had to do a lot of collective organizing to show that a different story was true, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they weren't being told the truth. It just wasn't okay. Right, right. People's concerns were ignored for a long time, even though they're seeing water come out looking like coffee, as one person described. And people were accused of lying by a lot of folks. A lot of people thought that like, oh, you're just trying to be dramatic. Oh, you're just trying to get attention. There was one woman who brought brown water that she got from her tap to an official meeting about the water. And she was straight up dismissed as just being like, oh, that didn't come from a tap. You're just, you know, like people just were not seen as trustworthy people, the people of planet. And this has proven to be very dangerous because, of course, this problem is worsening over time. 
the pipes are corroding over time. The more that people are ignored and dismissed, the worse the problem is getting. So there were very direct consequences of them not being believed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like there's real parallels to the communities that have allowed fracking because they have mm-hmm. the same situation. They notice these problems with their water, they bring it up in the meetings, and they're just dismissed. And so in the Flint case, the questions of who knew what and when, I understand, are still heavily debated. But do we see deceptive testing or manipulated results coming from the authorities to some degree in the story? Yes, though I have to say, like, a lot of what was done there was, in many ways, not unique to Flint or to Michigan. The way these testing results were manipulated has been mistakenly considered a kind of best practice, just nationally. And, oh, I'm excited to tell everybody about it because people need to know. (laughs) Um, So basically, water systems are generally supposed to do lead tests for the water, but, you know, maybe every six months or so. And, you know, in Flint, they were supposed to do it every six months and, you know, take samples from like a hundred homes and so on. This is from the lead and copper rule at the federal level. The lead and copper rule requires this. And to be clear, this rule isn't tailored to a public health standard. It's essentially just used as a metric for whether or not your erosion control is working. There is no legal requirement. Like my water could be basically pure lead, and that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with that, anything illegal. The setup is you do these water tests if 90% of your sampled homes have less than 15 parts of lead per billion parts of water, you're fine. 10%, that remaining 10%, can have all kinds of lead in their water, not illegal, not fine, no violation at all. It doesn't mean any particular community's water is safe. So what happens is a lot is like people don't want to get a lead violation. They want to go past the action level. They don't want to have more than 90% of their sampled homes to have excess lead in their water. So they kind of find these ways of making it look like there's less lead in the water than there really is. And they can do this in a variety of ways. They can test homes, sample from homes that they know have newer infrastructure, you know, since we stopped putting lead pipes in the ground, which was only in the 80s, by the way. Mm-hmm. You can pre-flush the water, basically run the tap for a while. Any lead that might be sitting in there tends to come out in the first flush. And if you let it run for a little while and then collect water, you're less likely to show the true amount of lead in the water. You can use bottles that have like a tiny opening at the top, which makes it so that to fill it, you're going to use a slow stream. And that slow stream makes it less likely to take any flaked off lead. A fast stream's more likely to pull off other pieces coming down into it. So all of this is considered totally legal and fine ways of sampling water, though it's clearly manipulative and designed to make the water seem safer than it actually is. Wow. And the other key thing that happened in Flint, too, is that there literally were some results (laughs) that were dropped. (laughs) Like in the summer of 2015, when things were reaching a pretty fever pitch with concerns about the water, they did their six-month testing. It looked like they were going to be past the federal action level, which means you were going to have to do a public notice and take steps to fix it, et cetera, et cetera. And what they did is they dropped like two of the highest levels of lead, including the sample of that woman who was accused of lying about her brown water at that meeting. They dropped two of the samples 
and then presented it as if like, look, everything's fine. It was just enough to put them below the level and they presented it as like a signal that don't worry, everyone, it's fine. But it's just not a true picture. It was not a true picture of what was going on. Mm. Man, lots of uh, little dirty tricks here. And this is kind of in line with what you were just saying, but I wrote this down because I thought it was important because a lot of people have this blind faith in the FDA or the EPA, and we have to have some watchdog agencies and we have to put some trust in them. They're there for something. I mean, we're busy. We got jobs, families. Uh, we need some some kind of protection. But you wrote that the EPA's allowing of some level of lead in the water is really their way of acknowledging that without a complete overhaul, there's just no way to reduce it to zero. And I think that's a great point because what it's kind of saying is that the levels aren't set where they are because that is the safe level for consumption. It's that that's the level where it doesn't look like we have a real health crisis. Because if you just said, well, no lead is good and zero is our standard, it'd be chaos. Right. I'm glad you're pointing this out because I know it gets kind of into the weeds when we're talking about how it's tested and sampled and all that. But the key takeaway is no lead is safe for people. But the way we regulate our water does allow lead in the water. And even when a community can say, look at our test results, they're, you know, totally meet all EPA standards or whatever. That doesn't mean you don't have lead in your water. Right. <laughs> it doesn't mean you don't have a lot of lead in your water. They don't even require testing at like schools or childcare centers, despite kids being more vulnerable to it or multifamily homes, like apartments. It's not a system that is designed to prioritize public health. You're right. We do need agencies on the lookout for this kind of stuff. <laughs> I think this is part of why the Flint water crisis got into the spotlight that it did. I mean, it, this was an environmental and public health crisis that wasn't caused by some corporation polluting too much because they wanted to save money. This was caused and prolonged by environmental and health agencies in the public sector, the people who are supposed to be our protectors. And that's very frightening. I don't think it means we need to abolish the EPA or whatever, but it does mean we need to do it better. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. The more I learn about these little situations, these little sagas, it's just like there's no substitute for personal responsibility. Don't outsource all your concerns to these overarching organizations because they have slightly different priorities, which is really just to keep everybody calm and not really alarm giant groups of people to... uh looming crisis. But this is something I got not from your book, but just reading more about the situation. It's actually from a grist.org article, but they say the EPA's lead and copper rule, part of the Safe Drinking Water Act, only requires cities to test for two metals every three years, and officials are only required to sample about 10% of residences and then even when they do, that data can be hard for the public to access. And you do write about these things too, but man, just even the transparency alone is, is a huge issue in this case. It is a huge issue. And even when it is technically transparent, it's, you know, of course, hard to understand. I had such a learning curve 
working on this book and reporting all this stuff because, you know, who teaches you about pipes? You know, most people don't even know if they have a lead pipe or not. I mean, it's just so obscure and complicated. We're talking about parts per billion and, you know, what are we even talking about? 90th percent. It's very confusing. And I think there is an absolute responsibility when we're talking about drinking water, which, you know, just to underscore is literally a life and death issue. The information is both available and accessible to people and also contextualized in a way that makes the information meaningful to you. It's not just some inscrutable PDF on some random web page that you'd never, you know what I mean? It's just revealing and meant to be revealing. It's a way to help empower people to have some agency about their water, make good decisions for their own health and for their family's health. And also, especially when it comes to water sampling, like people are supposedly supposed to be agents in this, right? They're often asked to collect samples or they're told that they're responsible for replacing their own pipe if it's lead, you know, if it's not under their private land. If you're expecting them to have some responsibility, you got to have information available. And they also have to be empowered to give input on it. In Michigan, like with transparency, one of the issues that I think led to this crisis going on as long as it did is the fact that we have one of the most secretive state governments in the country. We have an open records law that the legislature and the governor's office have exempted themselves from. (laughs) So we're only two states that does that, (laughs) that makes its legislature and its governor exempt from open records laws. And when community residents, activists in Flint were trying to get a handle of what was going on, it would have been very helpful if they had access to some of this information, if they'd been able to file open records requests, try to understand how some of this decision making was going on, what these conversations were going on, and that was not available to them, or to journalists or to other people who might have been trying to intervene here. I think that absolutely made the problem worse, and is still one of the unresolved issues of the water crisis that has not been remedied. We have not become a more transparent government since then. Mm. Well, that's definitely interesting context for sure. And so in this saga, the authorities who control the testing were telling people the water is fine for months. The people can tell that it's not. When did the tide start to turn? More than a year after the water switch is when it really started to turn. More than a year. Mm. So the switch happened in April of 2014. October of that year, that's when GM switched its water source because the water was too bad for them to be able to function. Yet residents were still told it was fine. One of the big changes happened in June, in May, June of 2015. A couple things were happening. One, there was one home in Flint, the home of uh, Leanne Walters, the woman who was accused of faking her brown water. They had an excessively, excessively high level of lead in their water, as documented by an official at the EPA office in Chicago who kind of went out of his way to test it and study it. And he wrote up a memo, a kind of draft report of what he saw going on. Just first of all, like why it was a problem at her house, which the city had essentially acknowledged, but why it wasn't just a problem at her house, why it was really a citywide problem. It was a real cause for alarm here. This memo got in the hands of a guy named Kurt Guyette. And Kurt Guyette had worked like 30 years at an alt weekly in the area and now was doing this pilot investigative journalist job at the ACLU of Michigan. He had been following emergency managers in Michigan, and this is what led him to Flint. He got handed a copy of this memo and he published a story about it. Not many people read that first story, but 
he had such a trusted reputation among other journalists that others, including Michigan Radio, picked it up. This was important because this is the first time that you have actual data that countered the state's data. For more than a year, when the story had been told, it was like the residents say the water's bad, the state says it's fine. The residents say it's bad, the state says it's fine. Now, for the first time, you had this new element where you had official data that countered what the state was saying. And it was coming from an EPA official that supervised the state agency. So now, you know, this is when things started to shift. Now you can ask better questions. You know, you have more to investigate. The other thing that started happening is that community organizers had been reaching out to outside experts to try to help, you know, bolster their concerns and questions. And they worked with some folks at Virginia Tech to do a citywide water study. Basically, they were going to generate new and better data to counter the state's data or just to show it's true. If the state had been right all along, this would show that. They did a far more comprehensive citywide water test than the state's sort of six-month little check-ins were. And what they published What they were able to show is that just as the EPA guy had said, it was indeed a citywide problem. This escalated a lot and turned the heat up on the state government. But even this wasn't enough for the state to concede. (laughs) Like you had yet one more step. You had to show not just a deeply unhealthy amount of lead that was putting the entire city at risk and getting worse. You also had to show that, in fact, kids were harmed by it before anybody was going to do anything. And this was a step that a pediatrician took. She coincidentally had a close friend who was a water expert. And the two of them basically worked together to do this study that showed that lead poisoning had been worsening in Flint since the water switch. So all this together showing, yes, it's a citywide problem. Yes, we have the data to prove it. Yes, it is causing actual harm to the children in this city. Then finally, the state threw in the towel to a point and said that it's an emergency. We're going to reconnect to Detroit about a year and a half after the initial switch. That was a huge win. It was also an incomplete win because these pipes were so corroded that even when you had proper, healthy, well-treated water flowing through them, they're so damaged that people were instantly fine, you know? And so the recovery of that has gone on ever since, basically. Yeah, I mean, the pipes are still in the ground, and they've been damaged from the inside, so just switching the water source is probably not enough, even with that corrosion protection going on. Well, you certainly have an immense amount of knowledge about this case. It's really impressive. The book's really good. And I'm sure you've just had so many conversations about this. Do you run into any common misconceptions or myths about the Flint saga that are worth addressing? I do. I mean, it is as clear from this conversation. There's so many, it is a case that can get really in the weeds. I mean, there's so many twists and turns and a lot to keep up with. And in many ways, it's still playing out. So it's understandable in some ways that even well-intentioned misunderstandings would get out there. But just a few to kind of throw out there, the bullet points, I guess, for your listeners. One is it wasn't the river that caused the crisis. It wasn't the Flint River. This was a mistake I saw on the front page of the New York Times just a couple of months ago. They were doing a well-intentioned story about how kids in Flint are doing with school in particular, how schools are handling it. And they make a reference to how the crisis was caused by, quote, the lead-saturated river, which is just wrong. 
the river isn't what caused the water crisis. It was how the water was inappropriately treated, especially with the lack of erosion control and the infrastructure that it passed through. The river itself, while once being super polluted, just like every urban river in the country, like people just dumped anything into it and it was totally fine. It was legal. We have had the Clean Water Act since 1972. It doesn't solve every problem, but it's helped a lot. (laughs) And a lot of these urban rivers have recovered quite a bit. And frankly, one of the upsides of General Motors having abandoned the city the way it did is that there's less pollution, right? So the Flint River is actually much healthier than it's been in a very long time. Not perfect, but much healthier. The river did not cause a water crisis. It was how people handled it or mishandled it in delivering it to people. So that's a big one. The other two, just like kind of briefly, is like one that this is just a thing that happened to people in Flint rather than being agents of its uncovering. Like the folks in Flint aren't just victims here. And the third, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about the emergency manager. I often see like references to like the city switched its water, right? The city council voted to switch its water or something like that. No city official had any power at all. It doesn't matter what they wanted or didn't want. All the power was held by a state-appointed emergency manager that made the cause and effect here just much more direct (laughs) than you often see in, I guess, similar cases. I think it's important to have that responsibility clear. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad we could address some of those things. And another point you make in the book that's interesting in the context of this water crisis is that If you're in inland Michigan, you're never further than six miles from a natural water source and that there are more than 11,000 lakes, including the Great Lakes, of course, meaning Michigan is surrounded by one fifth of the fresh water on Earth. And this is ground zero for such a huge scandal. And you also talk about how industrial processes have been trashing the water for a long time. And your mention of the river makes me think about a couple of the lines you have there about like Native American accounts or early colonial accounts of just how pristine and beautiful the river was. I mean, I've learned a lot about that from previous guests talking about these early settler accounts where they would say, oh, there was so much abundance. Our horses had to walk on the backs of fish to cross this river or a squirrel could get from the Mississippi to the East Coast without touching the ground because there were so many trees, so many huge oak savannas. And it is really just crazy. I'm sure there's a little romanticizing that goes on. But just to look at our environment today and what the Western society has done to it, we might not realize it's so different had we not had some accounts from those early days about just how black and white the differences really are. I like that you're attentive to that because it's true. I mean, water is one thing that connects us to our past. For better and worse, it holds the memory of all that's come before. It's the water cycle, right? It just cycles through. In many ways, our water is ancient. And then in Michigan, I mean, I'm a full-time freelance journalist. I could live elsewhere. <laughs> one reason I love this state is, is this water. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, these Great Lakes, if folks haven't seen it, from a human perspective, they look like ocean. Water as far as the eye can see and white capped waves and shipwrecks at the bottom of them. They're so deep. It's just, they're unbelievable resources and 
more than resources. I mean, they're just unbelievable facts and we're lucky to be on the same planet with them, right? Mm. And then plus all this inland water that you described, this is a state that boasts of being the Great Lakes state or pure Michigan or some of its taglines. And I feel like of all places that should be able to get a handle on water, you know, it should be us, right? Flint is 70 miles from Lake Huron. It's 70 miles from the Saginaw Bay, which is that bay that makes Michigan's thumb and it's a river town. And it got to a place where it could not trust its water, a place where people saw water as a threat. Like scarcity wasn't our issue here. It is in many places and perhaps will be more in years to come. I mean, a lot of people talk about how this will be the century of wars, not for oil, but for water. And here we live in a place of abundance of water. It truly puts a chill down my spine to think that we could mishandle it in a way that this water will hurt people. Yeah. I mean, that's not okay. I want to see us become not a warning story for the rest of the country and world as Flint has made us, but I'd like to see us become a model for, you know, a better way of treating our water with the respect it deserves for its own sake, not just how it serves us, but certainly also for its ability to keep us alive and well. Well said, well said. And as bad as the situation was, if one could say there was any silver lining to the Flint saga, one thing would be that it is a wake-up call for the lead infrastructure problems across the country. Flint is kind of a canary in the crumbling infrastructure coal mine, so to speak. <laughs> but where where would you look to find the next Flint? Actually, this comes up towards the end of the book, but it seems like there might already be some candidates. There are. I mean, this is part of why I guess this would be another myth. It's not just Flint's story, right? There are uniquely dramatic and urgent things that happen there, but also it is part of a pattern, part of a pattern of disinvested, impoverished core cities, part of a pattern of, you know, separate and unequal placemaking, and certainly a pattern for the vulnerabilities of crumbling infrastructure, especially infrastructure that is made out of a neurotoxin. And so, yes, we have seen it already play out. Newark has made a lot of headlines. Newark, New Jersey has faced a serious, very serious lead and water issue in the last few years that they're still in the heat of, you know, and trying to resolve. Pittsburgh has as well. I still have these like Google alerts for Flint and water, and I'm pinged all the time with how communities are, like you said, pay more attention to water and their infrastructure than maybe they ever used to, which is part of the good news. But also part of the challenge is that when you start paying attention, you tend to find lead, you tend to find problems that we can't go any longer with pretending it's not there. And some folks are meeting the challenge, right? They're being like, okay, we're going to take it seriously. We're going to get rid of the lead pipes. We're going to invest in infrastructure. There's more maybe support in the community than there ever had been because they have been alarmed by Flint. Some folks are using it as a thing to run away from, like to tamp down concerns, to be like, oh, don't worry about it. It's, quote, not as bad as Flint. It's not Flint. We're not Flint, even if it very much is like Flint. <laughs> in Newark, you saw some of that. Their mayor was really pointedly being like, guys, we're not Flint. Don't freak out. You know, it was really trying to get that message out early on. But it was very much like what was going on there. Mm. And delaying only exacerbates the problem. We just got to do it, man. We just, lead is lead. It's just poisonous. We just got to get rid of it. And by the way, even our infrastructure that's not made out of lead is probably due for an upgrade. And yeah, I mean, we're just talking about people's ability to live their lives, to have a home, 
to run their business in a way for kids to go to school and have something to drink. I mean, it is expensive and complicated, but doing it is investing in our communities and in our children and our future generations. So I just don't see a good argument against it. Mm, very well said. And just to add to it, quoting that same Grist article I found earlier, it says, according to an investigative report commissioned by Congress, about 2% of public water systems across the country exceed the federal limit on lead or exceeded the federal limit on lead between 2014 and 2016. And that was with less than half of the states actually reporting back. <laughs> and an expert in that same article says, even Flint's highest levels were not atypical for water systems in this country that have problems. And it's just very scary stuff. It's part of a pattern. And then exceeding federal regulations when, as we talked earlier, federal regulations aren't that great. Yeah. <laughs> like they're, not, they're not geared to a public health standard anyway. Exceeding them is a red flag and people need to respond to them. But it's not like if you don't exceed it, your water is lead free. That is not how that can be read. We need a better standard starting from the top and also in each of our states and communities that just prioritizes public health for once and steps up to make the big adjustments it'll take to meet that standard. Hmm. I agree. And man, just this has been a lot of fun. I mean, depressing, but fun to talk <laughs> to you and just excellent job doing the research and putting together the best breakdown of the Flint water crisis that I've found. Thanks for doing the hard work. As we're starting to wind down here, do give the good people any info you'd like about other works you have or events or just generally where they can get more uh, Anna Clark in their lives. Well, that's a very sweet thing to ask. <laughs> it makes me shy all of a sudden. As a journalist, I do, you know what I mean? Like you tend to, I'm like, well, the story, not me. Oh. That's true. <laughs> but I guess if people are curious, I also edited an anthology about Detroit that is very creatively called a Detroit anthology that's out there about another city that has a very fascinating and beautiful and strange history. If any of your folks are in the Virginia area, I'll be at the Virginia Book Festival in Charlottesville in a few weeks. It's going to be a really cool event with Harriet Washington, who wrote a book about environmental injustice that is fascinating. And we're going to do an event together. That'll be really great. And online, I'm at AnnaClark.net, and I write articles and try to tell true stories. Hmm. And so if folks are into that, I'm here. <laughs> Very cool. And it, you did just... Oh, no problem. And you did just kind of jog my memory, but you've lived in Detroit for over a decade. Is there anything to say about regrowth there? Yeah, I moved to Detroit in 2007, and that was a weird time to move here, right? Like the mayor was in the process of being indicted. Automakers were a couple years from declaring bankruptcy. The city was a couple more years from declaring bankruptcy and having an emergency manager of its own. The recession and foreclosure crisis hit the city super hard. It has been wild to just be a stakeholder here, let alone a writer and reporter. There has been incredible change just in that time. Not all of it's good. Some of it's hard. But some of it is amazing. And I love this city. I love this city. If folks haven't had a chance to be here, it is a fascinating place to explore. There's really great people doing a lot of really great things to make this a more livable space. Just in the time I got here, I mean, half the street lights were out at best. <laughs> and I bike and walk a lot. And I mean, it was literally dangerous. I mean, just even on a, you know, you're going to hit a pothole, right? Because you can't see anything. The street lights are back on now. 
it seems like a small thing, but it's a huge thing. <laughs> there is momentum here that it didn't have when I got here. And while there's still a lot of tough questions to ask about how to make a city you know, that's for all its people, justice issues, things like that, there's a lot of consolidation of power, you know, in a, just a few places. But I'm here because I love it. There's amazing people. There's amazing things to do. If you're at all a creative person, you're just going to go out of your mind with how many creative opportunities and art, music and literature and all that stuff. It's a very vibrant place. Yeah, very cool. I actually have heard that it's kind of become a hipster haven that artists are artists and artisans and craftsmen and even chefs who have mm-hmm. ties to Detroit or grew up there have come back to lend their skills and rebuild the community. And that's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, a ton of restaurants are here. There's a huge urban farming movement that's, I think, connected to that rise of restaurants, rise of the food scene here in many ways. Yeah, if you like to eat, you'll also enjoy it here. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, One last question, I guess. Any plans for a next book? I don't have it yet, except that there will be one. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, yeah, honestly, I've had kind of a long hangover from this Flint book. And I'm itching for another large project, but I also know not to just do a thing just to do a thing. I'll recognize the right story when I see it. Oh, yes. Well, I can imagine this was quite daunting and it is very thorough and there's so many pages of notes and references in the back. (laughs) It's really well done. So I really appreciate your journalism and your time. Keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for putting this together. I mean, really, this is maybe the most thoughtful interview that I've had a chance to do. I'm grateful. Ah, too kind. Much appreciated. All right. Well, have a good one. Bye. And that is what I'm talking about, good people. Mm. Anna Clark, The Poison City, great book. And she knows a lot more about the wider implications and the deep history than a lot of journalists who have looked into the Flint story, as far as I can tell. And I'm sure a few listeners might have seen this show topic pop up and they started to think, well, this is old news. Maybe it's not worthy of a full episode. But it's not just a show about one water quality problem in one specific town. The big takeaway to me is just how widespread this problem is and how vulnerable pretty much this whole country is to lead-tainted water. Flint really is the canary in the lead pipe coal mine. And it's tough because we talk about so many issues on this show, and they're all kind of fighting for our attention. So something like lead pipes, it quickly drifts to the background, but it need not. And sure, we've talked about pharmaceuticals and fluoride and even chlorine levels that have been too high in the water and have caused problems. And we've heard pretty blunt statements from the operators of these water facilities where they've said point blank, look, our systems are not designed for the chemicals and the prescription drugs that are making their way into the water. Agricultural chemical runoff too, on top of industrial processes and corporations that are just plain sloppy, letting it be someone else's problem. But to me, the biggest issue is that the pipes themselves are lead. That's got to be fixed. It's got to be drawn attention to. We've seen how many political debates recently and not a single question about fixing this fundamental issue. Whenever people bring up 
crumbling infrastructure. They talk about the roads and the bridges. Talk about the fucking pipes. I'm sorry. It has just been a major obsession for me the past couple of weeks. I'm probably driving my wife and my friends a little nuts, pulling up maps and figures of our own city here in San Diego and the parts per billion when it comes to lead. And it's not good. I've looked at one of these maps and it's all yellow or pink or deep red in the parts where me and my people live. And the only parts of the map that are considered safe, you know, that are shaded green, are where the fucking mountains are. There is no one living there and there are no pipes. But when you look at the map as a whole, it looks like, okay, we have some problem areas and some areas are okay, but no, anywhere where people live, it's a problem. And the real shocking thing to me that I learned from this book and interview is that they put an additive in the water that keeps the lead from leaching in. Maybe I'm just paranoid, and I'm certainly no scientist, but that seems like a bad solution to a bad problem. This chemical is strong enough to keep lead from leaching into water, but it's not a problem for us to be drinking that? I'm sorry, but my trust in the EPA is shattered, and I am not really cool with that as even a short-term solution, let alone a permanent one. I hear politicians talking about things like free college tuition, but there's no funds for fixing this? I don't know what to say, but I do hope that some people out there decide to engage with their local government and hammer this issue home to them. What else can we do? It's not going to be a federal thing, but you might make progress locally, or at least you can better protect your own home. So, it's a cautionary tale, and one where the details and the nuance really does matter, and when you throw in the inequality and racial factors, it's more than just a water crisis. It's a goddamn human crisis. We need to be reminded sometimes just how hard it is to get out of poverty when you're in it, how hard it can be for people of a different skin tone even, and I don't want anyone citing crime statistics to me. I don't even argue that minority populations have more crime on paper. But you know what they also have? More poverty, more frustration and anger at a corrupt system, more interactions with police, less opportunity, less guidance. Basically everything that creates quote-unquote crime on paper. I've been pulled over a lot in life. My interactions with police have not been great. But if the factor that determined whether my whole car would be searched or not relied sometimes on my skin color, well, if I was black, we probably wouldn't be talking right now. So just be humble, you know? We're supposed to be advocates for the disenfranchised and sound the alarm over injustices and inequality. But a lot of the time, I hear some pretty big voices in this conspiracy culture just worried about how things are going to affect them and people that look like them. Sometimes it's pretty gross, actually. So it's nice to occasionally throw in a reminder that we're all in this together and that the uphill battle can vary in its steepness. 
and remind ourselves of the real domino effects of poverty in this country. It is like quicksand for a lot of people, and at least we should have some acknowledgement and compassion for that plight. That said, I guess it's a bit of a bummer of a show today, but maybe just don't let it be in vain. Draw some attention to this before we have a dozen more city-sized crises. <laughs> Although, of course, if you heard the Plus show, it seems like we already do. But other parts of that Plus show include just how much damage was done to the children of Flint. 27,000 kids is not a small number. We talked about the dark idea of sacrifice zones the lead problem in Washington, D.C., personal stories of some people who were affected in Flint, the silver linings of such a tragedy, how the EPA attacked those people that were providing good data and good information about this issue, some common misconceptions and myths about the Flint story, of course, candidates for where we might see the next Flint issue, and just how bad this lead problem is across the country. So sign up for Plus if you like hearing the full two-hour interviews, action-packed and commercial-free. It's what I do. It keeps us going. Yada, yada, yada. But I liked this one. Anna did a great job. Clearly, she kind of checked out THC a little bit beforehand and saw what we do, and we had a little fun with that. I liked some of the things she said about alchemy. Quite provocative. <laughs> so big thanks to her and big thanks to you guys. Happy March. And I'm going to get to moseying. Take care out there. I've done my part. Your move lead pipe layers, untrustworthy agencies of infrastructure, and activists who demand better. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming. Of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a home, got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker. Built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. 
The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do? Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, 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 take it under.